I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is psychoanalyst Dr. Patricia Garavici. Her books include The Puerto Rican Syndrome, Please Select Your Gender, and Transgender Psychoanalysis. On September 16th, She'll be speaking at an online event hosted by Psychoanalytic Thinking called The Monsters Within, The Monsters Without, The Dissing of Psychoanalysis. Is there a future for psychoanalysis? To join this event, I'll link to the Eventbrite in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit her website, patriciagarovici.com, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-G-H-E-R-O-V-I-C-I.com. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from Trapar Books, 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, trapar.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. This episode is also a video uploaded at YouTube. Visit Trapar Films YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Trapar Film. You can find links and more information at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. So what comes to mind? Yeah, we were talking with Vanessa, this prompt of say whatever comes to mind. And I think I was wondering if... Perhaps the, the, the trap could be that one always may go back to the same place <laughs> rather than say something new. So whatever. I'm happy to see you, Vanessa. We haven't seen you in, in person since a while before the beginning of the pandemic. And we were talking about the, yeah. the transformations of our lives because of that. So, Absolutely. That, you came to Stockholm, yeah. though, in 2019 for the SIP conference. Yes. Yes. So that was... One, I think one of the last, I think it was even earlier than that. Wasn't it 2018? I think it was. No, it was 2019. Uh, the, okay. Okay. So it was one of the, the last, it was in May, yeah. May of 2019. You're right. Okay. I have a sort of strange chronology in my mind. It's like BC before COVID and after. Not. I, I hope we are in the after of COVID. It's not. Uh, very clear yet, and and how our lives have been transformed. I think uh, we were a little skeptical at the beginning uh, of how much psychoanalysis will have a a place in in a pan, in a pandemic in in the midst of a global catastrophe, and and to my surprise, uh, I discovered that psychoanalysis had something uh, unique to offer. I, I was very skeptical at the beginning, thinking that perhaps 
a psychoanalyst, we would have been more useful as a simple citizens that there were other forms of uh, intervention we could offer. But I was uh, surprised to see that during the pandemic, I have many people contacting me and, and uh, wanting to start analysis. Uh, and many of them are doing amazing progress. And uh, many started remotely and some of them are continuing. Others, I, I was able to to get them back into the office. But for those who, for different reasons, could not continue in person, we saw really a sense of urgency. I think there was something that changed with the pandemic. In I think in the perhaps perception of temporality, which maybe is something we could talk about, and psychoanalysis sometimes is something very special time in analysis if we take as point of departure what Freud says that uh, the unconscious doesn't know of time in the sense of chronological time, uh, and uh, and and the sense of urgency that the um, the pandemic made people rethink their priorities. And uh, it's interesting to know that psychoanalysis became one of of those things that were perhaps left aside. So I'll, something I would like to do, but no, now I'll do later. And and the sense of uh, uh, maybe the, the the situation of danger we were living in created a sense of uh, urgency that people no longer wanted to postpone something they they really wanted to do that may perhaps room more for desire even though it may sound counterintuitive in the middle of the pandemic is there room for desire in many people found it found a space in in psychoanalysis psychoanalysis had something unique to offer yes. But I see you nodding. I don't know if you have. No, I was pleasantly surprised to find that as well. People came in and are doing great work. And um, yeah, and I think maybe even now more than ever, people need to kind of find a place for desire because, because uh, yeah, it's, it's important. People's priorities are changing and people are realizing like, why am I doing this kind of day-to-day -day job? Or like, what do I want my day-to-day -day life to look to look like there's more of a sense of urgency so, so many people have lost so many people and yeah it really changes changes your perspective mm -hmm. on what's what's important you know yeah because indeed more often people come to see us when they find themselves in a situation of crisis and 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 it's not unusual the sense of urgencies we could sum it up like i cannot put up with any second more of this that's in a way, a common feature, but I think the pandemic created, exacerbated perhaps that that sense that uh, there was no time to postpone anymore. And and, and I think perhaps people are making uh, decisions, maybe given um, priority to issues that were perhaps neglected, like uh, relationships and and life choices about where to live how many hours to devote to work rather than to interaction with loved ones. So I think in, it put, made people put things into perspective. And we saw also a transformation in, in our practice that we were, in, like in, 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 in a matter of days, transform our, our, our modality of practice into mostly remote practices and, and has created a, 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 an effect of globalization without moving from my chair. There were days where I was giving a talk in Turkey in the morning, in Mexico in the afternoon, 
and the day after I was going to Brazil in the morning. So it was without ever leaving the chair you see me sitting in right now. So that's in a way uh, I, I would I pre I like traveling, so I would have preferred to personally have been in those places, visited maybe places I haven't yet gone to, like. Uh, uh, Turkey, but allow a, a certain accessibility and and if we think that psychoanalysis uh, is an international movement, I think that's how Freud from the beginning thought of psychoanalysis. The the uh, possibility of working remotely makes that very clear that it can be there are events where people from many different uh, geographical locations can can join participate. Even my my reading group that used to meet here in Philadelphia, uh, we had a psychoanalyst from Iran that would wake up at 3 a.m. to join the meeting because of the time difference. I was very full of admiration for that level of devotion and, and transference to psychoanalysis that allow for access that normally was uh, the seminar was limited to those who were in, in the geographical surroundings. And, and that, I think, was a, a nice, a good development that allowed for a sort of democratization of uh, psychoanalytic transmission. That there were many, many events happening and, and made accessible. Absolutely. And I, I love, like you said, I loved especially when people would be like on the same panel and they would be in different parts of the world. And there's like very little to no lag. You know, it's amazing that uh, we can have these conversations from different sides of the globe and like in real time. I love to see that. Yeah, but maybe it sounds like if we real time, almost like real with capital R in the Lacanian sense is no longer chronological, but for some, maybe 3 a.m. It happened to me, for instance, I gave a talk in New Zealand, and it was very bewildering for me that for me it was a Friday evening, and for them it was Saturday morning. So I felt I was talking into the future, as it were, <laughs> or, or I was stuck in the past also, however you want to look at it. So in the way, it, it makes us aware that time is also sort of fiction that 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 we live by or at least uh, when we try to 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 create a chronological uh, frame of time and, and maybe we are more operating in the time of dreams the, the immediacy of the now whenever that happens it could be Friday night for me or Saturday morning for for those in, in New Zealand so that that was also uh, interesting to 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 bring together all these uh, uh, accessibility and also when uh, it made me think that the democratization of psychoanalysis also mm, I don't know if it was uh, you you may have observed the same Vanessa that it felt like there was a sort of uh, awareness of the political aspects of psychoanalytic discourse that the the tone of the discussion the content they were uh, in a way considering the the events in uh, the the pan covid pandemic the maybe awareness uh, around social social and racial injustice in the US the black lives matter movement that many of the discussions in psychoanalytic groups were posing questions about um, political issues that up to then were somehow, we may say, if not repressed, perhaps only forgotten. And it uh, was not only the democratization in terms of accessibility, but also there was a transformation in the content that I found also very promising, that no longer psychoanalysts 
could think of themselves as having a practice outside of history, that there is this uh, illusion, at least in the North American context, that psychoanalysis is outside history. And it was clear that we were overdetermined by historical circumstances and, and they were ad being addressed directly, which was also uh, quite interesting, that development. Yeah, it's really important. And that's something, I mean, you've written so many great books, but the book that you wrote on the Puerto Rican syndrome, I, I tell everybody that's like a must read book because it's so beautiful the way that you talk about, you know, how psychology and psychoanalysis developed over time and the way that these kinds of diagnoses were used and how things were intertwined with the military and the kind of, you know, government control mechanisms. And um, it's just so important and you lay it out so clearly and beautiful and your work has really dealt with these issues you know, throughout, as far as I know, your whole career, and it's really important. And then, and then this event that Michael Ben sent me today that you're going to be talking about, um, what was it called? The Monsters Within, The Monsters Without. Um, and I love, I love how you're addressing like the field itself and how psychoanalysis kind of really needs to, to make a change and get out of these kind of patriarchal mm -hmm. structures. Cause I, I feel the same way. Um, and I think, like you said, like sex, sexuality and gender, it really is at the core. You know, it's something that people want to control so much from the outside, what people can and cannot do with their bodies and their sexuality and their gender, which just makes it it's such a potent and important place to start. And it's already happening, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was happening without our awareness. Happily, I think, analysts, we are very lucky to have our analysis uh, guiding us. I think that's what happened. How that's how Freud ended up inventing psychoanalysis. He was, uh, I think, the brilliancy of Freud was to allow himself to be guided by uh, the clinical practice, and he was very willing to uh, make technical modifications. If you think of um, how psychoanalysis was invented as a practice, uh, all the early modifications in the practice were guided by. Uh, those uh, analysis, uh, I think, uh, pioneering analysis that were at the time considered simply recalcitrant patients because they have opaque symptoms for which medicine, the medicine of the time, had no answers. And Freud was opening to listen to 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 take them at their word, but also to follow their suggestions. Like in the beginning. A little caught up with the hypnotic model. He would put a hand on the forehead and say, tell me what comes to mind. And then one of these uh, uh, hysterics of yesteryear, as Lacan calls them, would say, no, no, I feel freer to talk if you don't touch me. Freud then realized it better not to have physical contact. The speech will flow better and so on. So all the modifications and how the technique was uh, in a way improved and modified was being guided by the practice. And I think that continues happily. We are being uh, awoken from our different sleeps and, and delusions by analysis themselves who guide us, I think, on, on, on the truth of, by, by exposing us to, to the truth of what they're saying. And, and, and this is what happened, you were mentioning, my first book, The Puerto Rican Syndrome, is simply the result of my clinical practice working in a social location that is often considered outside the reach of the unconscious, working in the barrio. And 
discovering this uh, strange label, the Puerto Rican syndrome, that caught my attention because I had never heard up to then of any nationality attached to a psychiatric diagnosis. Nobody talks about uh, French melancholy, American anxiety, Argentinian narcissism, and so on. But there was a Puerto Rican syndrome, curiously enough, for uh, a nation that is not independent, that is still living in a semi-colonial and 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 when I look closely at the literature on the Puerto Rican syndrome, I was surprised by seeing that it happened to be the, an exact description of the most classical form of hysteria, one that for a psychoanalyst is quite in that uh, led to the invention of of, of uh, psychoanalysis, uh, hysteria with theatrical symptoms looking like uh, epilepsy, but with no real anatomical correlation. Exposed to me was, on the one hand, the racism of a, a psychiatric practices. One single diagnosis could condense that, that otherness is pathologized. But also, from the perspective of those happening to or, or experiencing this attack of the nervous or Puerto Rican syndrome, that at times individual symptoms could function like allegories of social conditions, because they already the label is, of course, clinical and unique for each person happening that, uh, undergoing that situation that produces this type of symptoms, but also condenses political and cultural issues. So it's individual and collective at the same time, political and clinical, and, and in that sense condenses what are practices that is never isolated, is always Traverse is a little what Freud says already that when we look closely at individual psychologies, also at the same time social psychology. And at times we need to not only analyze the analysis themselves, but also our practice as psychoanalysts or psychoanalytic institutions. And you were also mentioning this uh, presentation I'm, I'm going to do soon. Uh, that takes as inspiration this. Um, lecture given by Paul Preciado in 2019. I think was one of the last uh, in-person events in the psychoanalytic community was a, a gathering uh, in Paris of 3,500 Lacanian psychoanalysts. And they were convoked under the, it was a conference on uh, Women in Psychoanalysis, that was the, the title of the event, and the keynote speaker was Paul Preciado. Ooh, and that, that lecture was amazing because it created what some people describe as an earthquake. It's just the opening words of Paul Preciado were, ladies and gentlemen, and those who are neither ladies nor gentlemen, good afternoon. And that already divided the audience. There were those who were booing and those who were applauding, uh, a little timidly perhaps. And, and, and in a way, it already expresses a symptom of a, a sad history in psychoanalysis of imposing uh, heterosexist uh, prejudice onto the practice and who should practice psychoanalysis and what would be a model of a uh, uh, ideal health and supposed normalcy, that it is antithetical, it goes against psychoanalytic uh, concepts. 
I also take inspiration of uh, the conclusion of this lecture that unhappily Paul Preciado could not give uh, in, in its entirety, was interrupted uh, before he could complete the, the talk. Um, he then published it as a book, so it's available in several languages. Already the, the lecture was immediately uh, recorded on, on, on people's cell phones and it became as viral as a porn tape or a poem video. Everybody was watching it and it was immediately transcribed into um, Portuguese and it was translated Portuguese, English, uh, was uh, translated into Spanish. And there were all these unauthorized versions circulating of, of the lecture. Then it was published, now it's, it's published uh, as a book. Um, Can the Monster Speak, I think is the, the translation mm -hmm. into English. There are different titles in different languages, which we could talk about it. That's also interesting. And, and, and Paul Preciado concludes the, the talk that is a, a criticism of certain tendency in psychoanalysis that uh, not all psychoanalysts support, but many do, and happily, of uh, imposing a model of normalcy. And in that way, that model, imposition of a model of normalcy is what could be a connected thread in my work. I was working in the barrio with people marginalized by what is constructed as the race or marginalized by their social position, by their class, or and considered excluded out of the reach of psychoanalysis. That is something I'm quite opposed to. I believe that anyone can benefit, those who can benefit from psychoanalysis can benefit, that uh, income is not a factor that prevents someone from benefiting from psychoanalysis. And also working with uh, analysts who had been marginalized by their, because of their sexuality or because of their gender. So in a way that would be the common thread, those who had been uh, marginalized by oppressive notions of uh, sexual normalcy, gender normalcy, uh, racial alienation or racial belonging class and so on. So to go back to Paul Preciado, what I work in that uh, forthcoming lecture is this uh, in a way challenge that Paul Preciado uh, makes to analysis or maybe it's a, it's a wish it's a wish as well. We were talking about desire. I think desire is the compass of psychoanalysis. It's its ethical guide uh, and compass as well, uh, that if there is a future for psychoanalysis, it should be de-heterosexual, de-patriarchal, and decolonized. And I think it's, it's, it's an important uh, guide to keep in mind. And, and, and I think we need to really consider uh, how could we, and then I think this is a point of departure, is uh, to uh, become aware of from what position are we speaking as analysts, how we may be traversed by colonial discourse, how we could be repeating uh, oppressive notions that could in a way make us deaf to things we should be listening in the practice.
Yeah, because that's one of the things you outline. Like it's the difference, big difference between psychology and psychoanalysis. And psychology has been a tool that's used by the state to keep people very normalized, medicated, working. Mm-hmm. You know, to keep the capitalist machine going. You know, and psychoanalysis is supposed to not do that. In my mind, you know, <laughs> we're supposed to really let allow space for people to speak and to find their own way. That's totally you know anti-normative. There shouldn't be any norms put on there. If anything, I feel like people have internalized so many norms and they have to like piece them, you know, take them apart and figure out whose voice is this, who told me this, where did this come from? So they can figure out where, where their own voice is instead of like identifying with all these other kind of voices and labels that have been put upon them. Um, and so when I see Absolutely. psychoanalysis like mm-hmm. falling into these same kind of tropes, it's just so frustrating to me. Yeah, because if we consider that psychoanalysis is not an orthopedics, that there is not a pre-established a model we need to comply with, that maybe one way of uh, differentiating uh, psychology from psychoanalysis is that uh, in uh, in psychology we transform the symptoms. Psychological strategies could be effective and they could help with the symptoms, but the subject is not transformed. Whereas in psychoanalysis, uh, we tramf- the transformation is uh, in the subject that may perhaps keep the same symptoms, but relate to them differently. That's why somebody like Shishek may say, enjoy your symptoms. No longer a symptom you suffer. It could be a symptom that makes life livable, that you could enjoy. And, and also, uh, I think what is... Uh, Important is that there is no predetermined idea. We don't know from the start how that transformation would take place. And in that sense, uh, that's where I think the, the emancipatory power of, uh, of psychoanalysis resides, that we are not uh, imposing a pre-thought model of this is what this person needs to become. It's something that will that subject will reclaim some freedom to uh, take distance what you were saying these voices we have these labels at the end of an analysis there is a distance from what you use Lacanian jargon would be the big other we are no longer so determined by these uh, mandates that could come from uh, family expectations the the name that was chosen for us to carry that may may not be the same name at some point in life, or may not have the same meanings or over-determination, that there is a little bit of freedom and is still maybe a little bit, but still freedom that could allow us to then exercise uh, perhaps a, a different kind of a choice, not, not imposed from the exterior, but rather a, a decision, a subjective decision. That the authority is the analysis, not 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 the analyst uh, or not the outside big other. That there is, I think, a, a possibility of taking distance. Yeah, exactly. And and when we think of oppressed minorities, however they may be oppressed, I think that's of uh, great importance to to provide the space where that that can happen. Absolutely. And I think that uh, another 
<laughs> thing, the great thing to say about the Puerto Rican syndrome. I just love that book. Um, but you know, having worked in hospitals and for people that are working in hospitals or working with people that are not, uh, the, the high SES, you know, uh, clientele that the psychoanalysts talk about, you know, uh, being able to be in psychoanalysis. You know, it's really refreshing to see this perspective. And, and then, of course, there's the follow-up book on psychoanalysis in El Barrio that came out more recently. Um, it's a collection, edited collection. Um, but it's so important because when I was working in the hospital and HIV clinic in, in Brooklyn, you know, the, the way that they ask us to treat patients, it's just like, I'm not going to talk to people like that or treat adults that way. You know, it's like I'm going to listen to them. And, you know, my supervisor was very much like, you know, frustrated with me that I wasn't like doing the CBT or doing what they were asking me to do with people. Um, but it's like, I'm, I'm just not going to treat adults that way. And they, and they had this very much this attitude of like, you know, oh, but they, 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 they can't benefit for anything else, you know? And it's just like, who says that? Like, why do you, why do people think that? And of course people can benefit. I mean, who can't benefit from being listened to and, and having a space to speak, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, but that's not often taken into account that I think that there is a tendency to infantilize uh, um, marginalized populations and there is this uh, sort of paternalistic position that uh, they need guidance uh, and uh, and it creates really a very oppressive model where the, the analyst is positioned as the master who would, or the pedagogue or the oppressor in a way that is going to, to reproduce the same structures that it would, in a way, perpetuate that position of oppression and marginalization, and uh, and and I think it's important to to keep in mind that psychoanalysis has a, a proposition where we take a person uh, at their war, we see them as grammatical subjects, and 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 to treat somebody as a subject, not as an object. Often they are objectified. Uh, even maybe in the name of good intentions, but we know that times good intentions could uh, hide the most sadistic and, and aggressive forms of violence, that to, to take somebody at their word and give them a space where they can exercise their subjective responsibility. Often we, we see even in, in a practitioners who supposedly have good intentions. And, and it's not simply a humanistic position of respect for the other. I think it's an ethical stance of a, of a basic respect and, and a assumption that the other is another in all its otherness, but respecting that. That I think psychoanalysis factors in otherness in a productive way that uh, creates an space of uh, subjective responsibilities, I think, the opposite of an infantilizing position, and uh, and that how important it is for somebody who is um, experiencing life, always being uh, ascribed this marginalized position to be in a place where someone uh, is not only listening to them, but also I think this is the amazing thing of psychoanalysis. It's a little like when a cell phone has bad connection that you at times you hear an echo of yourself, or at times I don't ha- I don't think it happens so much now. But I remember in the early days of uh, Zoom and Skype, at times it would be echo in the connection. In analysis, one hears oneself 
differently. I think this is the one of the wonderful things of psychoanalysis. Not only that an analyst may listen and maybe return something of what the analysis listen back to the analysis. Already the analysis, while talking to someone in the position of the analyst, is more aware of what they are saying and is listening to themselves. So there is already this uh, space, this already triangulation, where the analyst is already paying more attention to their own saying, and uh, it creates a different uh, space for the different type of agency. And, and, and I think it's of utmost importance for oppressed um, communities, be it by whatever tools society unhappily imposes on them uh, for oppression. That I think that's uh, the, the, the amazing potential of psychoanalysis. And in that sense, it's very anti-oppressive. Absolutely. And that's how it has this liberatory potential, like you mentioned. What do you think about the fact that there's this that seems to be like, on the one hand, this real liberatory potential that I feel is like the kernel, the core of psychoanalysis. And then this kind of uh, aspect where people just tend to go to like the binary or the institute and like try to like lock mm-hmm. everything down into these kinds of like theoretical arguments. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very surprising because uh, you see a very big disconnect between uh, what we may call psychoanalytic uh, foundational thinking and uh, and psychoanalytic theory, even psychoanalytic, I hope psychoanalytic practice, but I know unhappily that's not the case for every practitioner, that if somebody is faithful to the fundamental rule, the same one, with which you invite me to talk, say whatever comes to mind, that uh, in, in, I think that that fundamental rule, it works uh, for the analysis. You can say whatever, you're free to talk, and we will together listen to what you're saying differently. You will listen to that otherwise, and it will acquire a different connotation, and there will be a different resonance for those words in the space of the session. Uh, it's also something that is reminding the analysts themselves, don't listen with prejudice. You listen is sort of undifferentiated form, the floating attention also, one possible translation of how Freud uh, proposes this as a premise of analytic listening, means undifferentiated attention, that you listen to all the material without privileging this or that, and maybe letting things rebound and produce echoes. And and I think this is an important frame that allows for uh, the the, the analytic world to to progress. So one may say that what then the analytic institutions created as ideals, models, are in a way symptoms and deviations from psychoanalysis. It's really, for me, astonishing to, to, to think that. How can psychoanalysts, if they listen carefully to the material that is brought to the session, how could they imagine that there is a primacy of a certain sexual function or a sexual mm, or a sort of mm, hierarchy of, of, of a use as a certain body part 
as a model of health. I think those are uh, symptomatic constructions that in a way are contradicted already by early uh, psychoanalytic tests. And I'm, for instance, referring to the three essays on the sexual theory of Freud, 1905. It's a very old text, more than 100 years old. And, and we know now, uh, for instance, uh, the work of uh, uh, Philip Van Houten and Hermann Westernick, that they did a very important uh, work by retracing the first edition of the three essays. And they realized that at least in the first edition, Freud was not yet working with the model of the Oedipal complex. It's a, a text that in a way pro proposes a non-heteronormative um, conception of sexuality, something that uh, queer theories like Chris Lane or Tim Dean have noted that if we look at the three essays, already notion of the drive that Freud proposes is the drive that doesn't have any predetermined object besides satisfaction. And not only that, the drive is searching satisfaction and the object is con contingent and indifferent. So we, if we, if we follow this in, in already in very early texts of um, foundational texts of psychoanalysis, we wonder where did the post-Freudian analyst get the idea that there is one model of sexuality that is normal and one is not? One thing one could learn from the three essays is that human sexuality is uh, infantile, polymorphous. So it's impossible to sustain theoretically. But I think these are symptoms that have to do with uh, politics, institutional deviations, and a certain recalcitrant uh, resistance to the unconscious, even by psychoanalysts themselves. I think when I make this silly joke that I have done too many times, but I will indulge Allah Shishek into bad jokes, repeat it over and over again, and I will say that I, I said that people at times uh, will not question whether or not poor people have a soul, like early uh, conquistadores were wondering whether or not the native population had a soul, but they uh, seem to imply, whenever I mention, mention my experience having conducted psychoanalytic cures in the barrio, that they seem to be surprised, a sort of knee-jerk reaction. And in fact, it's as if they were saying that people are poor, too poor to afford an unconscious. Nobody would say that openly. Nobody would say the poor don't have a soul, but they seem to imply that they cannot work productively with their unconscious. And uh, and this, I think you were, Vanessa, referring to this idea that people have to be sophisticated enough to do psychoanalysis. They are naturalizing poverty, assuming that somebody who happens to be poor, these are social conditions that are historically determined, uh, that somebody is poor because of a certain social condition. There is no essential uh, poor feature in the psyche. Nevertheless, you find tons of um, elaborations in, in psychoanalytic literature, even uh, with the hypothesis that poor people are psychically different. They have different instinct different uses, uh, less defenses, uh, more primal need, horrendous and very uh, prejudiced constructions that are, of course, totally false and seem to imply a naturalization 
of poverty that becomes a, a, an internalized a psychic feature. It's as if you were saying people are poor because they want to be poor. They desire it unconsciously. Nobody would say that, but it's the, the consequence of that type of uh, theoretical construction. And, and, and I would challenge them if you were to maybe bracket off certain social uh, traversals, for instance, a report of a shooting in the barrio on a daily basis, as it was in my practice in the barrio, the content, if you compare a content of a middle-class person with the context of a session of a person in the, in the barrio, libidinally speaking, it would be impossible to tell the social class. I would challenge, we cannot, there is the, the psychic dynamic, there is no essential difference, but there is this construction that poor people are different, therefore they should not, uh, that psychoanalysis would be only for those who can afford it. Yeah, Which exactly. brings like us, said, yes. Like they're, they're not sophisticated enough in some way. I remember in psychoanalytic oh, training, yeah. they like, like when you have people come into the institute and they make you like figure out, they take weeks and weeks to figure out if the person's like able to be in psychoanalysis, you know. Like, yeah, but then I think that the ability there is as Lacan says, there is only one resistance, the analyst. Maybe the person who was not sophisticated enough to do psychoanalysis was the practitioner. I wouldn't put it on the analysis because if you listen, you listen. And in a way, was what happened to me. I was practicing as a psychoanalyst in a barrio clinic in a place where I wasn't expected to be doing psychoanalysis, of course. It was a mental health clinic. I was supposed to be in, in a social setting that works more as a space for buffering rather than uh, providing any space for transformation. And, and, and there what... Um, I couldn't help but do was listening to the unconscious and 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 I was lucky enough that uh, the population I was working with was mostly of Puerto Rican origin and already they gave to dreams a big importance they would often believe that dreams have message hidden uh, and and often they would uh, feel that dreams was a space where maybe the dead would communicate with the living or there was a message contained in the dream and they would then decode it to maybe play a number at Lotto, but they would be very happy to talk about their dreams and they remember their dreams. Some of them would write them down. So I, I felt that there was, let's say, if, if uh, all we need for psychoanalysis is transference and resistance, those two were there. And, uh, and I think there's maybe this missing or the lack in sophistication we should examine it on the side of those practicing it, not so much of those uh, who could benefit from it. Agree. And and, and maybe I'm maybe use that. yeah. <laughs> and 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 then and then and, and also uh, there is I think often uh, semantics are helpful. The when Freud talk about lay analysis, he uses the word lay, and and I was happy to find that the etymology of the word lay. Uh, lay analysis when he was talking, coined this uh, description to try to take psychoanalysis away from medicine, uh, which is unhappily what happened in the US. It developed as a sub medical specialty that uh, he was defending psychoanalysis as a separate discipline, away from medicine, and maybe even away from the traditional 
sci scientific model, maybe if it's scientific model for psychoanalysis would be the conjectural sciences, not hard sciences, not physics, not medicine, not chemistry. And um, he was also trying to protect the, the, the practicing analyst status, that analysts didn't need to be uh, MDs or nurses or social workers or psychologists to practice that. In fact, Freud felt that a better training to become an analyst was to know about opera, literature, about um, myth, and that the, the, that hum, the humanities were a better place to acquire a formation to become an analyst. And, and he chooses the idea of lay analysis. Uh, and and the and the word lay means of the people. So I would say that a psychoanalysis that is not of the people and for the people could not be properly called psychoanalysis. And and unhappily, this is something forgotten, at least in the US. There, there was an adaptation, a sort of uh, it's a paradoxical decolonization, because those, I'm always very surprised that if you think of the, the early days of psychoanalysis in the U.S., psychoanalysis was uh, in a way popularized and too enthusiastically adopted, and Freud was very skeptical about that. He was invited to give uh, lectures in 19, in the early 20th century, I think it was 1905. The, 1909. Uh, the, mm -hmm. 1909. So very early on, and, and he was warmly welcome and uh, he went to Clark University so he's very well received too well received he wanted resistance when they were saying transference and resistance there was only transference and no resistance and he was very suspicious he was afraid that psychoanalysis would become a religion and 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 I think it, it became a religion but a sort of a a religion the, the type of religions one could watch on TV a sort of private church, very profitable private church that uh, distorted psychoanalysis and I think lost this uh, edge. And by, by saying psychoanalysis of the people and for the people remind us of a development that, for instance, psychoanalysis took had in, um, in Latin America. In most of Latin America, not for everyone, but for many, psychoanalysis kept that the edge associated with uh, social movements, with social conscience, with the left. So that's something that is hard to, to imagine in the North American context, in the U.S. in particular. And, uh, and uh, so there is this uh, uh, clear politicization in, in Latin America where it hadn't lost. And, and if you think of uh, the early days of psychoanalysis, and, and for me, it was very important the work of Elizabeth Danto in her book, Freud's Free Clinics, where she documents something that is forgotten from, uh, of course, the social memory, but also from psychoanalytic history. We don't talk about that much as psychoanalysts of this uh, 20 years, this period between First World War One and Second World War, where there was this network, mostly in Europe, of free clinics, where psychoanalysis had to be made accessible to all those who can benefit from it. And I'm not trying to, I don't think psychoanalysis works well with universals. That's the tension in psychoanalysis that times we seem to 
argue for universal, a sort of universal subjective structure, but uh, we are working in singular cases, case by case. This tension, I think, uh, inherent to psychoanalysis, I don't think that psychoanalysis would be good in every single case, but it's for me symptomatic and suspicious the total exclusion of psychoanalysis from, for instance, from settings such as uh, barrios. So I would, would think that it's interesting to know that those same analysts who were involved in these free clinics, who were very conscious of the, the responsibility as brokers of change, not only at a subjective individual level, but also at the social level, that there was a responsibility that analysts had uh, for society as well. And uh, there is this famous speech that uh, Freud, and it was repeated a lot during the pandemic, not yet, First World War had not yet finished. He gives this uh, speech in Budapest, uh, and he, in a way, states the obvious, the rich and the poor has as much right to benefit from psychoanalysis, and he imagines a future when people will have access to a cure uh, for the tuberculosis, and they will have as much availability for that kind of treatment as they would for psychoanalysis, which brings very current issues in the U.S., accessibility to universal health care. Who can get access to tuberculosis treatment today in the U.S. is not yet universal. And who can have access to psychoanalysis? Maybe we need to also consider that as problematic. But uh, it's for me interesting to see that those analysts that were so uh, engaged in uh, their social mission, not only their uh, responsibility as individual practitioners in the private practice, also they were all in, involved in the free clinics, moved to the US, and then suddenly this transformation takes place and there is this deviation in psychoanalytic practice and even thinking. And the same people who were at times actively politically involved decolonize in a way, cut away this European social conscious past and Americanized psychoanalysis in a way that became perhaps um, paradoxically too compliant. So maybe decolonization needs an, a component of deviance to be fully decolonized. So in a way, the cutaway with the European heritage, that type of European heritage, but Americanize it in the sense of transforming psychoanalysis into a very lucrative practice. The, the model was to make as much money as a plastic surgeon. And I always say, indeed, you cannot do five times a week Botox. I think your face would be too frozen. But you can do five times a week psychoanalysis and for equal fees, if not more. So I think that there is something there to, to reconsider about when we the way, accept Paul Preciado's challenge, okay, let's decolonize, but how? And and, and what type of decolonization we, we need to, to put into practice? Yes. Absolutely. I have to tell you too, I've recently been asked to um, edit a book 
on uh, the queer heritage of psychoanalysis, talking about these exact things like early, you know, like Freud and writing the letter to the to the parents of a homosexual saying like, I'm not going to try to change them. And and this kind of thing, like with the, the three essays, the earliest reading, looking at these things in the early times of psychoanalysis. So I don't know if you already have a home for this talk turning into a paper or if you want to write something else, but I'm soliciting you for something. If you would like to be a part, it will be next year, though. But I'm just letting you know now. <laughs> okay, okay, good, good. So this talk comes also with a nice invitation. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Good. Good, good, <laughs> Sounds good, perfect. Good, good. good. <laughs> so it's good that you're asking me to write because the, the, there is something that is, is difficult for analysts to find the space and the time for writing but I, I find that uh, it's it's, uh, it's in a way if we think that the, the process of analysis and, uh, and it's already how Freud tells us to do dream interpretation is treating what is uh, said in the session like a text is important for the analyst for us analysts to do the there are our own process of transcribing what we are thinking and producing a text. I personally find that I clarify my, my thinking when I have to write about things I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about or things that, again, I learn from the practice and, and, and I would like to insist on, on everything I have done so far. It comes to me from the practice. I think I'm, I'm very grateful for the generosity of my analysis who had been constantly uh, sharing with me uh, things that allow me to, to see what we may then describe as social movements, but happening five years, maybe with at times 10 years, we start hearing things in the practice or on the couch that then we will read about them on the news or, or, or see them in, in papers, in collections, maybe a decade later. So in a way we have this wonderful possibility of uh, we're talking about time of of maybe being ahead being like new new cylinders to in comparison to north americans that we are in in a way one day ahead of what will happen so it's this is it's the nice benefit of this uh, time of the unconscious which is not the chronological one Absolutely. It keeps us on the cutting edge. And I, I, I think about that all the time, what a privilege it is to hear so many people's kind of stories and internal worlds mm -hmm. and how it helps me, you know, learn so much and grow so much, um, you know, just like hearing so many different perspectives and understanding so many different kinds of ways of thinking and being. It's, a, it's so generative in so many ways. Is there anything else yeah. that you wanted to mention before we wrapped up? I think I think I talk a lot. So <laughs> yes. That is great. Many, many things. It's my revenge since I talk in the session, but I'm mostly listening. And, and if I talk, it's trying to be close to that. The speech of the analysis, these moments are precious to me because it allows me to to maybe take revenge and, and speak. And also you, you're a good listener. So thank you for, for your patience. And, 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 and having me, giving me this wonderful invitation, say whatever comes to mind. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Bye, Vanessa. Patricia. Great seeing you. Good to see you. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Patricia Garavici. For more, visit her website, patriciagaravici.com. And check out the event hosted by Psychoanalytic Thinking on September 16th. The Monsters Within, The Monsters Without. The dissing of psychoanalysis. Is there a future for psychoanalysis? Link to the event fight is included in the text accompanying this episode. You can follow me on social media at Rawson underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore on Instagram and Twitter or Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23 at TikTok. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. Thank you so much to everyone in our Patreon community. Your support is greatly appreciated. A descent to the roots of worlds by crossing experience by which we create and shape our world. The scales of Mott observed the traveler, an extra human being. A gown made from the flesh. A gown made from the flesh. The flesh. Heart. Floss. Leather cording. Each thing that beautiful. Dressed all in blue, a gown made from the flesh, a gown made from the flesh. How can we interface to our subjective experience? and the metabolic behavior seems rather sophisticated. Why is the interaction of a simple entity with a, but rather, in a sense, constructing entities of behaviors? The effect will occur the of the flesh and through which one touches the visible and the invisible. A gown made from the flesh.